so amazing to be here this morning with all of you uh, to celebrate the greatest truth in the world, that he is risen. He is risen indeed, and because of that truth, you and I and all who believe may have life. It's the reason we are here. It's the reason we have hope. It's the reason that we can know we are saved, forgiven, and loved. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, we read some words that were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus even walked this earth. In verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And then about 700 years later, after those words were written down, a man named Jesus came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died for humanity, and rose from the grave. Let's pray together before we dive into this life-changing story. God, thank you so much for this day, unlike any other day, where we can celebrate the fact that you are alive. And because you are alive, because you rose from the, day, from the dead, we can have life. And God, I pray that you bless our time together. Let us hear from you. Give us ears to hear. And I pray, God, that if anyone is, is here this morning uh, that may not know you, I pray that they would come to find that you are real and that you love them and that you are the answer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kick things off this morning uh, by showing you a short video. Uh, this video will hopefully jumpstart our conversation together about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, we live in a very uh, social media-driven world with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, with that in mind, I ask this question. What would it have been like if there was Twitter back when Jesus lived? Let's watch and find out. Wasn't that a great video? Uh, I love how it lays out the events of his final days. And especially, I love uh, the fact that it shows the explosion of followers after uh, they found out that the tomb was empty and he was alive again. If you think about it, it's really the greatest comeback story you could ever witness and ever be a part of. I think everybody loves a good comeback story. Um, how many of you have been watching the uh, NCAA tournament? Quite a few, okay. I'm not going to make any Kentucky jokes today. Um, that was a good game last night. Um, there are so many uh, great games uh, within that tournament, and one reason I, I love sports so much is just the the comeback stories, the underdog stories, you know, teams that weren't expected to win uh, or teams that uh, were down by a whole lot of points and they make this inspired comeback. And it's really, it's an amazing thing to watch. Well, this is a cool story. Um, back in 2001, Sports Illustrated published an article. And, it, and the article uh, was titled, The Top 10 Greatest Comebacks of All Time. Now, even though it was Sports Illustrated, it wasn't just limited to sports. Like, for example, coming in at number 10 was the comeback of Elvis. Uh, there was other uh, humanity after the Black Plague was on there. Uh, some countries after the World Wars were on the list. And then some of the sports-related ones they had in the comebacks of Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan. But as you go down the list, you come to number one. Again, Sports Illustrated wrote this in 2001. The number one comeback of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 33 AD. The caption they put in the article read like this. It said, he stuns Romans and defies critics by his resurrection from the grave. But how cool is that for a non-Christian publication 
to write about Jesus Christ rising from the dead. There's no greater comeback story in the world. I mean, he was dead. He was buried. He was gone. So they thought. Instead, he conquered all odds. He came back. And as Christians, we believe he's coming back again. And that's why this is the greatest story, greatest news in the world. The truth is this. So whatever you believe about Jesus, whether you have followed him your whole life or maybe uh, you're on the fence about who he is, there's no denying the impact that a man named Jesus has had on this world. I mean, it's thousands of years later, and we're still talking about him. He's still changing lives. Think of this truth. You could take all of the kings in the history of the world, all of the celebrities, all the presidents, all of the armies in the history of the world, and combine them. And together, they would not match the impact that a man named Jesus has had on this earth. I want to share some things. Maybe you've heard some of these before, but I just want to go over a few examples of how much Jesus has impacted this world. First of all, uh, look at how our country was even founded based on the Bible and Christian principles. Uh, Over 34% of all of the founding fathers' citations were directly from the Bible. So over a third of what they ever put to writing was from Scripture. How about the influence Jesus has had on education? Many of the world's first languages were first put to writing because of Christian missionaries. The printing press was invented by Johannes Gutenberg, who was a Christian. His primary purpose was so the Bible could be transmitted. Uh, Over 95% of the first 120 colleges in this country were founded by Christians. The first 200 years of public schools in our nation were Christian schools. Think of his influence on music and art. You can't even imagine how many pieces of music have been influenced by Jesus. Uh, As for art, it is estimated that nearly half of all art pieces in the history of the world have a Christian background, which is mind-blowing. Think of authors, Shakespeare, Tolkien, Dickens, among others, works greatly influenced by Jesus. How about Jesus and medicine in the 4th century? It was decreed that hospitals were to be established wherever there was a Christian church. And this tradition continues in many places today with so many hospitals having Christian origins. And that's not even to mention the thousands of charities that have been made and formed in the name of Jesus. World Vision Charity by itself gives over a billion dollars a year to people in the name of Christ. So these are only a few examples. We could talk for hours and hours about the influence that a man named Jesus has had on this earth. Uh, We have all kinds of historical evidence that a man named Jesus did walk this earth in the first century. So here's the question. Who was he? Was he just a good guy, a good teacher? Was he someone who was nuts making these crazy claims? Or was he really the son of God? Because the answer to that question is life-changing. That's a question we all must answer. You may be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis and some of his works. Um, I wanted to share this from one of his books called Mere Christianity. It says, or C.S. Lewis said this, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him 
being just a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, If you read stories in the New Testament about Jesus, you would have to agree that he could not have possibly been just a good teacher. That was not an option. Yet so many people in the world today, that's what they will say about Jesus, is that he was a good man and a good teacher. But I want you to think about this analogy. If you had a neighbor who was a really good guy, uh, he was always serving, he was always helping people, always nice. One day he comes to you and says, oh, by the way, I'm the son of God. And I and the Father are one. And if you believe in me, you'll be saved. Here's my question. Could you possibly be neutral about that person any longer? There's really no chance. You would think one way or the other about him. Uh, So it's strange that in, in today's world, so many people are neutral about Jesus. That's very inconsistent with his teachings. If he was only a good teacher, how could he even be considered a good teacher if he was also lying about who he was? Now, this man named Jesus had to have either been some kind of liar or the son of God. The fact that he called himself equal with God is unlike any other religion, belief system, movement, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes people will ask me and they'll, and they'll say, you know, why is Christianity the only way? Why can't there be multiple ways? Why is it the only correct uh, belief? Well, all throughout history, there have been religions and movements and belief systems where there have been people who have claimed to be a messenger of God. Whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi, Joseph Smith, uh, the list goes on and on. Nobody has ever claimed to say, I and the Father are equal. No one has said, I, I am God in the flesh. So let's think about that. If Jesus really was who he said he was, then Christianity can be the only way. So again, I will ask that question, who, who was Jesus and who is he to you? Uh, speaking of Muhammad, uh, Muhammad is uh, the main prophet for Islam. Uh, Muslims believe he is higher than Jesus. Um, Franklin Graham recently had this to say. He put this on his website uh, a couple weeks ago, and he's talking about the differences between Muhammad and Jesus. Here's what he had to say. Muhammad is dead and buried in Medina. You can actually go visit the grave. Jesus Christ is alive, and he's sitting at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. Who do you want to follow, the dead or the living? So not only do we have tons of historical evidence that a man named Jesus existed, we also have evidence about his life and his teachings. We have evidence that he died a brutal death. But thankfully, the evidence does not end there. We also have lots of evidence that he rose from the grave three days later. And again, if this is true, if these things are true that I'm about to tell you, then he clearly was who he claimed to be. So again, I'm going to name off a few things on a list here. Uh, Some things, uh, evidence for the resurrection taking place. And you may have heard of some of these in the past. Um, But number one, he was buried in a well-known tomb that was closely guarded. Uh, All four Gospels mention this. They mention where he was buried. Uh, This is also backed up historically from uh, writings outside of the Bible. So he was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, It was a place that was very visible, a place that 
uh, people knew where it was. So the disciples could not have just taken the body and then made up a story that he was, uh, that the body was no longer there. Everybody knew exactly where the body was to be laid. Number two, nobody, no one was ever able to find the dead body after three days. They admitted that it was missing. You can imagine back then the kind of ransom that would have been offered if anyone can find this body and bring it to us, but it was never found. And keep in mind the Romans specialized in killing people and guarding the tombs. Okay, that's what they did. They were very, they were very good at it. So for a body to be stolen right out from under them, uh, they could have lost their own life if they allowed that to happen. But nobody was able to find the body. Uh, the third thing, women were the first to notice that the body was no longer in the tomb. This is significant because at that time in history, uh, women were not well respected as much as men. And so if the story was being fabricated, if, it, if they were lying about this, the men would have taken the credit. They would have said it was us and, and making up the story, but they didn't do that. Another thing is Jesus appeared to over 500 people at different times after his death. It wasn't just a select few people, over 500. And sometimes people will say, well, maybe they were hallucinating or something. Well, that's not possible medically to have multiple people having the same hallucination. That's an individual thing. So he appeared to his followers and others, which leads me to my next point. The Apostle Paul, a man who wrote half the New Testament, was a non-Christian until he had an encounter with the risen Lord. He was someone who despised Christians and murdered them. And then he meets Jesus after he rose. And then probably my favorite and most impactful of all the historical proof of the resurrection, and we saw a little bit of that in the video, is the unbelievable change that took place among Christians and the Christian church after he rose from the dead. As he was brutally murdered on a cross, most of his disciples walked away. Everyone was afraid, afraid for their own lives. This man they had followed for years was now dead, and they they thought all hope was lost. If you read the New Testament before Jesus died, you'll, you'll see plenty of examples where the disciples were actually, at times, a little cowardly. At times, they would mess up. At times, Jesus would question, why do you have such little faith? It all changed that first Easter morning. Men that were once cowards were now fearless. Men who used to deny knowing him would now give their lives for him. That simply doesn't happen for a lie. How many of you would risk your life for a lie? I know I wouldn't do it. And again, all throughout history, there have been religions, movements to take place. When the leader dies off, typically the movement does as well. So why did Christianity have this unbelievable growth after their leader died? There's only one explanation. They were so sure and so convinced that he had risen from the dead that they were willing to give everything for him. And again, all these years later, uh, we are still witnesses to that fact. There's billions of people this very day, thousands of years later, that are living their lives as new creation. I just don't believe that could happen if the story wasn't true. Um, In the book of Acts, we read this incredible story of a man named Gamaliel. Um, Gamaliel was a well-known Jewish authority figure, a a member of the Sanhedrin Council. And if you didn't know, the the book of Acts is basically a a biography of the early church. Uh, So Jesus had already lived, died, rose from the dead. 
stayed 40 days. He ascends back into heaven. And at that point, the early church is thinking, okay, now what? And that's when the rapid growth takes place. Uh, they, they remember the things Jesus taught them. So the book of Acts is this biography of things going on in the early church. Even though the, the church was spreading rapidly, there was still a lot of opposition, just like in today's world. Okay, so um, this man named Gamaliel, he wasn't really for the whole Christian thing, the whole Jesus movement. And again, he's a very powerful, well-known person. But look at what he had to say in Acts 5. He's responding to the Sanhedrin people. These people are trying to talk about whether or not they should kill the Christians. The movement that's, that's spreading rapidly, they're trying to figure out what should we do. Should we kill them off? Here's what Gamaliel said in Acts 5, verses 34 following. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men, speaking of the Christians. Some time ago, Thuidus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Here's where it gets really good about the Christians. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So this, this man, he basically tells them, we need to leave these Christians alone because one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to kill themselves off. They're going to die off eventually. You know, this whole Christianity thing may last for a little while. It's just going to die off like everything else that we've seen. Or if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it anyway. So he's telling them, well, what's the point? There's no reason to kill these men. And again... I will say, here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about a movement that has never stopped. More proof that this movement was, in fact, completely from God. Listen to this truth. The cross proved his love, and the empty tomb proved he was God. One of my favorite pastors that I listen to is uh, Judah Smith. And uh, I was listening to him a while back, and he had this to say. He said that a great definition of love is the answer to this question. How much did the gift cost the giver, and how little deserving was the receiver? How much did the gift cost the giver, and how little deserving was the receiver? Well, as we know, it cost Jesus his life. And as the old saying goes, it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. He had the power to come down he had the power to stop it, but it was love for us that held him there. And I want to tell you today, I, I do not deserve the gift that he gave me. I don't deserve God's grace. I fall short every day. I am just as much in need of God's grace as anyone else that has ever lived this world. God is a perfect being. And you hear that word sin all the time, and sin basically means to miss the mark. It means Anything that is apart from a perfect God and his will is sin. It's, it's almost like we're turning our backs on him. That's the bad news, that every sin separates us from God. 
no matter how big or small it is, here's the good news. There is an answer. Jesus is the answer. He is the antidote for our sinfulness. I'd like to do a little demonstration at this time that I did uh, for our youth group a while back. Let's see, where's Mr. Fruits? Come on up. He knew about this. Come on. (laughs) We don't have all day. Let's go. (laughs) How's it going? (laughs) All right, so uh, we're going to do a little demonstration, uh, a little analogy here. Uh, Even though Mike may look more like what God would look like, um, I'm going to play God in this, okay? So, sorry. You're just going to play normal person, okay? All right, so we're going to say, I'll stand over here. We're going to say that this first part is how most people view their relationship with God and and the whole sin thing. So, as we talked about, come on over here real quick. As we talked about, every sin separates us from God. It's almost like we're turning our backs on God. So he's going to turn his back on God. And we're going to say every time he makes a mistake of some kind, he takes another step from God. And since he's a human, he sins again, and he takes another step, and he takes another step. Keep going. (laughs) Keep screwing up. Keep screwing up. You can go down there if you want. (laughs) That's good. Okay, you stay, stay with your, tur- your back turn. Okay, this right here is how a lot of people view their relationship with God in this whole sin analogy. Um, they believe that God is a perfect being, so he just stays in his, in his spot up in heaven. And every time we sin, every time we mess up, we get further and further away from God. And eventually, we've messed up so many times that what ends up happening is we're so distant from God, we, we believe that he doesn't love us anymore, we believe he can't even hear from us anymore because we've messed up too many times and the distance is too far. Well, let me show you what the gospel really says. Come on back. Doing such a great job. Thank you. <laughs> so here's what the gospel really says. Now again, it is true that every sin separates us from God and we turn our backs. But as he takes a step and continues to, to sin... The gospel says that God goes after us still. He pursues us still. You can see that from the very beginning in Genesis. Ab and Eve screwed up, and it said God went looking. He went pursuing them. Okay? So God follows. Now, maybe he doesn't hear me yet, and he's still going. God's following. God's following. That's good. God is the one saying, turn around. Simply turn around. How are you? Good. Not great, yeah. Now, no matter how far away you feel like you got, God loves you. He says, turn around. And then he says, now, follow me, and let's go back. And he takes them with him. Good job. Appreciate it. (laughs) So all all throughout the Bible, one thing is, is very clear. The second you come to Christ is the second you're forgiven. Your past no longer matters at that point. It's not about, I've messed up too much in my life. God couldn't love me. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is every one of us needs God's grace equally. And we are the ones that simply need to turn around to him. He's he's there. He's there waiting with open arms. But so many examples in the Bible, we see someone who caught in adultery, and the second they come to Christ, they're forgiven. Somebody who used to murder people, the second they come to Christ, they're forgiven. Um, It's just unbelievable. The, The people who... Uh, the tax collectors who would steal from people regularly, 
the second they come to Christ is the second you're forgiven. That invitation is applying to all of us today and every day. It's kind of like uh, the TV show called The Voice. Anybody watch The Voice? Um, in that show, in the first round, the judges have their backs turned. There's four judges in the chairs. Their, their backs are turned. So if I was trying out for The Voice, I'd have my microphone. I'd be looking out, and I'd see the four judges with their backs turned. And I would have to be good enough for them to turn around and say, okay, you're good enough to be on my team. That's how the show starts. Well, again, so many people view God like he's one of the judges. They view him as like his back is turned. And if you're good enough, he may turn around and accept you on his team. But the truth is, as the analogy we just showed you, we're the ones with our backs turned on God. He's the one who's pursuing us. He's right behind us, simply saying, turn around. And then he'll take us to where we need to go. We don't get to heaven by being a good person. Um, You could ask, you know, why did Jesus even go to a cross if we could get to heaven by our actions and by our good deeds? It says in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So if your salvation could be gained by your own actions of being a good person, then it was pointless for Jesus to go to a cross. And listen to this. Jesus did not come to this earth to make you and I good. He came to give us life. He did not come to make bad people better people. He came to give dead people life. And again, the antidote for our sinfulness is Jesus. Nothing that you or I could ever do. Um, One day, when I leave this earth, I will not be going to heaven simply because I was a youth minister, simply because I I preached about Jesus to people, and not because I was a good person, not because I accomplished this or accomplished that. I will be going to heaven one day only because of the grace of God. Because Jesus died in my place and, and he rose from the dead so that I could one day rise myself. Right before Jesus died, uh, while he was hanging on the cross, there were also two other men hanging on crosses next to him. Uh, This story is found in Luke 23. And it says this, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we have another example right here on the screen that tells you and shows you the second you come to him is the second you're forgiven. I mean, this, this criminal was sentenced to death for doing something terrible. And the second he comes to Jesus, he says, you'll be with me this day in paradise. I want us to look closely at this story. There's two men. They both say very different things. One of them basically says to Jesus, you know, if you really are God, prove yourself to me. While the other one says, this man has done nothing wrong. 
I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Here's my question to you today. Which one are you? Which one of these two men are you more like? Are you more like one who says to God, God, you need to show me something. God, if you're really so great, why is this happening in my life? Why don't you show up? Or are you more like the one that says, God, I've messed up. I need you, and please forgive me. The truth is this. Every single one of us are the ones that deserve to be on that cross because of our sin. But Jesus did it for us. And if you think about it, we are the comeback story. We are the criminal on the cross. We are the prodigal sons and daughters. And we are the ones that simply need to turn around and give our lives to the one who gave everything for us. Remember that story when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was in a tomb himself. He was dead. And Jesus said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came to life. My question to you today is, is God calling your name? Is he calling your name to come out of death into life? All those who are not saved through Jesus are spiritually dead But the second they come to Jesus, they can be made new. Is Jesus calling you to new life on this very day? We're going to sing an invitation song together. And when this song plays, if you feel God tugging at your heart to make a decision for him, I want you to come down front as the song is is being played. Myself or one of the elders will be here to talk to you. And I just want to encourage you and know that In moments like these, Satan tries to go into overtime, and if you feel God was speaking to you, and and Satan's going to do everything he can to keep you where you are. But God has already made up his decision about you. The cross proved it. And he's pursuing us. He simply wants you to turn around. And your past will no longer matter. Just simply giving it to him. God will meet you exactly where you are. So again, I encourage you, if you need prayer or want to make a decision for Christ, to come forward. He's risen. He's alive. He's enough. Let's stand and sing.